Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking with Philip Kretsidemus. Phil, I, just as we talked about it... Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking with Philip Kretsidemus. Phil, I, just as we talked about it, I, I managed to mangle your name again. Phil, how are you doing? I'll give you the chance to do a full introduction of yourself and who you are, the correct pronunciation of your name, and, and where you're affiliated to. So, tell us about yourself. Um, yes, sir. Well, um, uh, actually, the thing is, is Chris now, but Chris Demis is fine, too. Um, yeah, I, I'm, well, I guess I'm currently a, a associate professor at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, um, in the sociology department, but I do work um, that's um, interdisciplinary in nature, you know, that sort of International when people are doing certainly in political science and um, American studies, uh, you know, immigration studies, which in itself is interdisciplinary. Um, you know, and uh, I guess this book is just sort of the, I guess it's sort of like, like the culmination of a lot of different areas I, I've been exploring for the last few years in my work, I guess you could say. Um, you know, I just sort of pulled together a, a selection of essays which, um, you know, just explore different aspects of immigration policy and politics and try to reframe them in some original ways. Yeah, it's a really yeah. enjoyable book. I think both for people in immigration who do focused immigration policy work, but in, in lots of other of the fields that, that you've just mentioned. Um, I wanted to talk first about the, the interesting preface, uh, preface to the book. Um, you describe the book in the preface as a research memoir. Uh, we don't typically think in those terms. So what did you mean by this exactly? Why is this what is in many ways, a, in almost always, a scholarly book, also for you a, a personal book? Yeah, I guess, yeah, I mean, in some ways perhaps the, 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 the autobiography really is buried, you know, um, quite even because, of course, the book itself, I mean, yeah, it's just it has a broad historical sweep, you know, it really pretty much goes from the, you know, the, the, I guess, mid 1800s, you know, mid-19th century, you know, to the present, but, but I guess in some ways I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting on issues um, in the book that sort of come out of my history of, of working with, um, uh, well, well, doing immigration research, but also doing work with, you know, immigrant, um, I guess, um, organizations, you know, uh, immigrant rights groups and immigrant community-based organizations, you know, so it's... Uh, you know, so I mean, so, so, so I, I guess you could say the the questions I'm exploring are questions that have been informed by that um, by that experience. Um, uh, but yeah, it, but in some ways, of course, that really is just like the the, the buried subtext, the actual you know, but the actual content of the book itself is I, I don't signal how it connects to my to my autobiography throughout. Um, but, you know, I, I suppose as we go on, I, I have to kind of explain you know, you know like how each particular you know, section of the book has been informed, you know, by... by, by Absolutely. I, yeah, for me, it was, a, it was sort of an interesting uh, start to the book. Um, so let's, let's talk about the book. Um, you, you begin by explaining some of the limitations of both the, the anti- and pro-sides 
of the immigration debate. Um, and, and that's sort of not, not quite the right way to refer to it, but, but you, you sort of say that on, the, on these two conventional sides, uh, there's some real limitations. So maybe you could briefly, as, as a way to set up what your argument is, uh, recount what the conventional viewpoints are on, on immigration, both for those that argue for and those that argue against. Yes, sure. And I should say, I mean, unfortunately, I don't really, you know, unfortunately, really end the book with a compelling solution. I mean, I really, the book really, the goal of it really is just to sort of flesh out the terms of a problem, you know, or, you know, and, and, and maybe, you know, I guess the idea is really that in some ways maybe it's just best to, like, uh, provide a compelling problem for us to talk about, you know, um, as opposed to sort of, you know, sort of presenting necessarily, you know, like a tidy argument about, about what to do. But, but I'd say, yes, I mean, generally, um, and I guess the problem side, you could say, you know, the mainstream, you know, immigration coalition tends to focus on, you know, I guess you could say selling immigrants, you know, to America as, you know, um, I guess, you know, people that are economically useful, and, and sometimes it isn't put in, in that quite vulgar way, but just the idea that immigrants seem to drive the economy, of course, you've always been historically a country of immigrants, and at the same time, there is, you know, I've you know, shown parts of the book, just especially in recent years, this year from the you know, 90s onwards, a, a tendency to recruit immigrants in ways that does, you know, um, I guess contribute to patterns of economic inequality, um, which, which quite often really um, harm immigrants themselves, you know, where immigrants are, are, are recruited in ways which they are more at risk of, you know, I guess being, you know, treated like expendable, you know, workers, um, you know, um, you know a, a sort of temporary economic guests. Um, you know, and, and of course, you know, the growth of immigration, you know, from that time onward also correlates with the, you know, the sort of expanding immigration, I mean, income inequality in the U.S. in general. Um, you know, so, I mean, so you could say that there's a, you know, I guess, the, the, the argument for immigration is very optimistic, but it's sort of weak and passed on, on, on looking at the, you know, at the outcomes the ethical, human legal rights-like outcomes of immigration immigrants themselves and also for the you know, way in which income is skewed in the U.S. And, you know, that, that, that's a broad way of, of framing it. And then, uh, you know, the immigration control argument, I mean, uh, I, mean I guess one of the ironies of it, and I point this out with the, with the expansion of immigration enforcement, is that, you know, the, the need to kind of you know, secure the border and, and to view immigration as a kind of security threat Ironically, sometimes like it, it, uh, it, it, it's played a role in, in justifying the expansion of the immigration uh, in, enforcement complex. But in the book, I show that the expansion of this complex, actually, or, or this enforcement apparatus, hasn't really necessarily restricted immigration either. I mean, like, what it really has been, you know, I mean, I mean, I don't know if the government's going to officially admit this, you know, but just looking at it from the outside, it appears that. You know, the, the expansion of immigration enforcement had been used to control or manage and expand the immigration flow, not to really restrict the flow. I mean, certainly there, there, there have been ways in which it, it, it is being used in a very targeted way to maybe restrict certain kinds of migrant populations that are seen as undesirable, but for the most part, you know, it's, it's really been used to, you could say, police and expanding flow, you know, not, not to restrict the flow. Um, and, you know, so, so there's a way in which you could say, the, you know, the, Push for immigration enforcement, for immigration control, doesn't necessarily translate into, um, you know, lower immigration levels um, as, as well. You know, and, and of course, there's also lots of, you know, um, uh, you know, arguments that have pointed out, you know, the ethical problems with just simply um, restricting immigration. Um, you know, and, 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 and that's a whole other, you know, issue there. 
Um, right. But, 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 I, but also, I, I think it's a practical illustration. I think like what, what happened the last time that the U.S. actually, um, you know, even, I guess, you know, the, uh, uh, explored immigration reform, you know, the, the 2007 debacle under, you know, you know, under the Bush administration, and in part, what happened, you know, in that, you know, in that, uh, in that debate was just like you sort of had the, you know, George Bush and, you know, Ted Kennedy really coming together, you know, to try to sponsor this sort of mainstream immigration package, you know, that, that, that would, you know, that, 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 that was really trying to sort of pull together, you know, kind of, you could, I don't know, you could say mainstream neoconservatives or, you know, just mainstream conservatives who were supporting immigration reform with mainstream Democrats. But there's this ironic kind of, uh, you know, coalition of forces that came to oppose it, which was the, you know, anti-immigrant groups or the groups that wanted, you know, a hard, you know, a more, I guess you could say, more robust starvation control. And also immigrant rights activists who, who found that, that uh, the compromises that were being made in order to sort of expand, you know, um, you know uh, the guest worker program and what have you, really weren't really, you know, I mean, like, were, weren't really worth it when it came to, you know, um, my lights, you know, you know, essentially, you know, like, like things like, like, like the Z view, which we don't have to get into depth right now, but it was a, it was just a, you know, a, a strategy of giving, you know, mainly undocumented workers a temporary legal status, but essentially, you know, I'd say what some immigrant advocates sort of argued, I think, effectively, is that the Z view was really just sort of legalizing the very same conditions in which undocumented workers are working without only changing the conditions, you know. Um, right. You know, and, you know, so, you know, I mean, and, you know, and, and so that way of legalizing people, um, it was also ethically problematic for a lot of people. I thought, you know, you know and, 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 and so it just wasn't, you know, it's like you had this weird situation where you had this, uh, middle that was defined by, you know, the kind of, uh, mainstream conservative and, and liberal forces and then the sort of, um, these, Odd coalition of forces against, which also stand, you could say, like, like the left and right on the and, and, you know, and of course, in the end, it didn't go through because it just didn't have the support of, you know, of enough at the center. Um, uh, you know, but, but I think the, the outcome of that, of that, you know, failed, um, reform process and really kind of illustrates, you know, this, in, in a sense, like the problem, you know, that I, you know, that I try to sort of spin out in different ways throughout the book, you know. Right, and you know we're we have to read this this book that you've just written in the context of the current debate oh, yes, that's happening yes. in the federal level. But but your book, and I think this is what makes it a really interesting com- uh, contribution, focuses much more on the increasingly important role played by local lawmakers and local enforcement. And and the Arizona 1070 is is one example of this. So where does this shift to local enforcement come from exactly? What are, what, and what are its implications for immigrants living in what is, is in many ways a patchwork of immigration laws and immigration enforcement across the country? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess there's probably mixed debates about where this, uh, where this shift, you know, like towards local enforcement came from. Like, I believe there's one person... Um, and I won't say your name because I'm not sure if it's quite by the book, but I've heard of an argument that that um, uh, the uh, 1996 illegal immigration reform and immigrant responsibility act, you know, IRA, IRA, um, that was enacted un- under the Clinton administration, um, played a key role in in sort of uh, I guess um, setting some important precedents at the federal level, um, allowing for local enforcement. Um, and, but the argument that I present in the book, Phil, is that, I mean, I mean, even though that might be the case, you know, that really, at least in recent years, the push towards local enforcement 
practically speaking, begins around, and especially local immigration laws, really begins around 2004 or so, 2003, because you really only begin to see these laws um, showing up, you know, I mean, you know, on on, on the books around that time, you know. Um, uh, yeah, uh, you know, um, you know, I mean, that's something they really begin to surface. You know, and then, you know, and, you know, and, and the, my main data source for this really is the National uh, Association of State Legislatures, you know, but, which is what I think I was able to use it, really. Um, but, but that's when they begin to show up and expand. Um, it so happens that that, that, that that expansion occurs on the heels of a failed uh, federal-level um, debate um, over um, over local enforcement, where, where for a while you, you actually had lawmakers in Congress Wanted to pass a national local enforcement law, essentially. It, it, would be, it, would be, it would have been like a federal bill that basically would have mandated local police to be involved in local enforcement. Um, and it was resisted by a complex combination of forces, including the police departments who just thought that it was put them in a bind, you know. And so, um, what happened that, like, after that failed, um, is that they begin to see the rise of, uh, efforts to involve local police in immigration enforcement, but, but through the but, but 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 through the enactment of of locally passed like like of, of local legislatures, um, if you could say you know like a true local local enforcement movement, you know, began to happen and really and and again like, I explain in the book that basically um this I mean it partly had to do with um these memos that that were being enacted you know that were being sort of circulated by the Bush administration um you know uh, you know this, you know uh, uh, you know, outside of, you know, I can get to like, the, you know, the formal legal process, you know, like, like outside of the court system, what have you, but, but, but these memos that were basically revising um, the Department of Justice's, I guess, wor- working understanding of the role of police and local enforcement, and, and especially these memos were basically saying that, you know, um, state and local governments and police have an inherent authority to enact immigration laws and to enforce immigration laws. I mean, you know, so, you know, like part of that time, the... I guess those bodies jurisprudence, which basically sort of said that you know police do probably have an inherent fight to do so, but only in the context of um, uh, like an existing criminal investigation. You know, so if you're already investigating somebody, you know, you know for suspicion of you know a crime, then it makes sense to you know to allow them to you know to uh, enforce immigration laws in the context of that, and sort of what the the Bush memos were going to open more widely, even though there already had been some precedents that were being set by the uh, circuit courts in the direction, but the Bush administration's you know, memo didn't work clear. It's just that, no, police really have the inherent authority, you know, irrespective of what there's a prior criminal investigation going on or not to, you know, so like query people about the legal status. And local governments have the right to pass their own laws to that effect, you know. So, right. so, so, you know, so, so it really kind of clarified that. And, and actually, this is where the, 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 I guess where the research memoir comes in. I mean, I, mean, I really became aware of this because I had to be working at the time um, as a policy analyst and development person for the national, um, uh, well, the immigration project of the National Lawyers Guild. Mm-hmm. And it so happened that, you know, that they were a part of the coalition of groups, including the, FCA, the ACLU, who actually were, like, were filing a Freedom of Information Act, you know, um, you know, a query, you know, that actually forced the Bush administration to actually give up this memo, you know, and, you know, and, and, you know, and, and disclose its contents, you know, so, you know, so I was sort of hearing about this as it was happening, you know, because I was working with them, you know, and, and um, you know, and that's how I basically learned about it, you know, you know, but then after, you know, so I, I took what I learned from that and then also sort of compared it against, you know, um, um, what was happening with fiscal growth of these local enforcement laws from that period on, and, and it's, you just sort of see that, I mean, you know, these, Memos are being circulated in 2001, 2002, 
and 2003-2004, you begin to see the mushroom of these laws, and, and then they mushroom even more after um, the, you know, the failed uh, 2007, you know, reform debate. You know, and you know, and the only like you know, one one thing that the lawmakers were saying was that well, because the federal government basically has hasn't solved immigration reform at the national level, then then we really have to take things in our own hands, you know. And so we're going to pass our own laws to solve our own local, you know, quote unquote immigration problems if they haven't given us a solution. And then again, then of course you see these laws expanding further after 2007. And um, yeah, I mean, and, and they're still pretty much expanding to this day. I and mean, I, I haven't checked the data lately, but even as of like, I mean, as of when this book was published in 2012, 11, 12, like they were still pretty much going at a pretty good clip. Right. Toward, toward the end of the book, you try to reconcile um, what the country can do moving forward. You're not you're not offering a specific array of policy recommendations, but you at least talk a l- little bit about this, and, and you suggest that. This concept of, of whiteness is, is closely intermingled with national identity and that there, there has to be some conversation or reconciliation about that fundamental change in the, the composition and, and identity of the United States. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that and, and whether you're hopeful about the future for immigration policy and for immigrants and for enforcement of, of the, the laws that are on the books. Yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah, but it's, I mean, I must say that, you know, in a sense, you know, there's a point at which, I mean, I do spend much of the book just trying to sort of, um, map out the terms of a problem, and I do, I mean, at the end of the book, it, I mean, there, there is an element to the discussion which is kind of like a big Hail Mary pass, right? Like, you know, I don't mm-hmm. even know how to solve this, but I guess here's some things we have to look at, you know. Um, I must say, though, that, I mean, I mean, I bring really sense to it, in part because, I mean, from, from, from a good part of my career as a sociologist, I, 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 I teach race ethnicity classes as well, you know. So I, I guess I am like a critical race theorist of sorts, you know. Um, uh, you know, so it's something which sort of natural for me to go to. And actually, even in my discussion of local enforcement laws, which are the situation historically, I mean, I do make the connection like with, like with Jim Crow, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And it is, I mean, it, it's a... It's a delicate argument because I think that I, I think when you raise the, the issue of race, there's so much. You know, you know like even with the recent like Martin Zimmerman, you know, issue that just happened. You know, you know, like in you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the whole case that happened just now. It's, it's a it, it's a hot button issue, and I think that what, for example, local enforcement shares or local immigration will share in common with Jim Crow is not the more obvious aspects of Jim Crow. Like clearly, you know, I mentioned the book is not that local immigration laws are, are creating, you know. Citizen-only and immigrant-only bathrooms, you know, something. But, 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 but what's similar is that you do have this history of local of local ordinances, you know, that allow localities to make their own decisions about how you know rights and resources are going to be, you know, organized along these, you know, you know uh, between these different categories of people, you know, you know, and really it isn't. I mean, actually, you know, the, the I guess. The, the role that these kinds of local ordinances have played, I think, in U.S. political culture, probably goes beyond even local enforcement, local immigration laws in Jim Crow. I mean, you could see certain continuities, like with the alien land laws, which, which spread pretty much, you know, from the late 1800s and were active pretty much through the mid 20th century, which also were took the form of local ordinances, and even probably an argument to be made like the standard ground laws as well, you know, which also pretty much are, are state and local laws. You know, that there is there is a continuity. Um, in I guess you could say the um, the legal rationale guiding the laws and the way in which they sort of you know um, try to you know um, 
create a space in front of discretionary authority for like local access or local governments to, to come up with their own interpretations of what you could say of federal, you know, um, of, you know, of constitutional, you know, law and what have you. But um, uh, but yeah, but 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 getting, I mean, but there's that thing. But getting to you know, the whole question of whiteness, I mean, I think. I mean, there's a, I think like a, there's a, there, there, there are, there's a racial dimension, you know, certainly to the immigration debate. I mean, there is research, you know, like, I mean, I've seen most recently with a book by, by Hatton and, and Williamson, um, we're not really, we're thinking, positioning themselves really in the center of the immigration debate, like they aren't like in a hardcore immigrant rights activist, but, yeah, but, but, but they cite research, you know, showing that in, in the case of Australia in particular, but, but also many other nations that, there really is a pretty well documented in public opinion, you know, empirical relationship between, you know, racial, like, like perceptions of immigrants as being racially, culturally different and worrisome and support for immigration reform. I mean, and support for immigration restrictions. I mean, I mean, there, there is that relationship. Um, I mean, it isn't the only thing, you know, shaking um, these, you know, these, these kind of concerns, but it is there. Um, and it is something that I think we have to deal with because, you're, I mean, uh, and, and, Start out, you know, pet, you know, so that we can actually perhaps, at the very least, if we can come to terms or, or at least understand how that might, might be shaped in the debate, the debate, and maybe hopefully, I don't know, control it in a more rational way, then maybe it'll be easy for us to actually get to the bottom of the more, I think, like valid um, economic and political concerns about the, the, the effects that, you know, that immigration has you know, pro and con for different populations. You know what I mean? Because I think make the argument in the book too, which I think is also. I mean, as many of the books have sort of you know, brought this out too, that I mean, immigration may be good for the economy, but we know that the economy in the whole hasn't, you know, doesn't work fairly for all people, you know, um, you know, and, and so at some point I think that it is so much that immigrants are clearly are necessarily bad for the economy, in, or even that they, they directly displace as many people as you know, as sometimes it's argued, but that you know that they you know the immigration plays a role as you know as as do many other forces in fueling an economic process in which the costs and benefits of economic growth are not fairly shared by a wide section of the, po- of the population, right? And also where that, you know, sort of distribution of costs and benefits has become more unequal over, you know, the last few decades, you know? So immigration is really not directly the blame, but it tends to sort of aggravate these long-standing grievances, you know, that have been building up between different segments of the population about who's really benefiting, you know? Um, but, you know, but, but certainly, I guess, when it comes to race, you know, like, like race perhaps... Um, there's a racial, you could say, well, immigration gets easily, gets easily racialized, and I think that in some ways that sort of confuses the, the you know, the issues at stake, you know, so um, I know I don't really answer the question in a really... <laughs> no, I think... There's so much to get to, but, um, you know, but, but it's just something that, you know, that, that we have to, I mean, so I'm just going out there, so, I mean, like, like, read the book, like, throughout the book, I do kind of Especially at the end, explain like, like why we need to like, like, like think about race, but I also try to simultaneously like reframe what we think of as race as well, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, because I should also ask you this, like, like with another book that's actually coming out pretty soon, where I, where I deal more specifically with immigration and race, and in making the, the argument actually that race is a, is a factor in immigration, it actually sort of butts heads with another way of seeing race in the U.S. It actually frames immigrant racialization out of the picture. I mean, because I think for very good reason in the U.S., I mean, we have a history of seeing race in terms of white and black, which, you know, makes sense, you know. Um, and in terms of a history of race that is, like, specific to the U.S., you know, U.S. political history, you know. Um, but as a result, like, 
happens is then like you like you sort of like it's very easy for like reach to become uh, this is gonna be a bit of a jump here, but uh, you know to get framed in a way that is sort of consistent like with like a Men in Black movie, you know, mm-hmm. where you like you know like like where you have all these crazy you know I mean in a way like I, I think you know, I mean people have not begun to do this and I always thought thought the Men but the, the Men in Black movie that are really you know. Maybe even perhaps intentional metaphor for the politics of race and immigration yesterday, where you can have, you know, you know, like, you know, it would be essentially, you know, alien enforcement agent, you know, that's what they call immigration enforcement, but that's essentially what we're doing, you know, and a black immigration enforcement agent, who are sort of these sort of equal partners, right, you know, in projects that are, you know, like to secure the territory. And whiteness and blackness are, you know, it's a racial difference, but it's still indigenous, seen as indigenous to the national territory. And there's, there's all these other differences. That really are just alien, you know. They're like, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of maybe implicitly racialized because it's, because they can be distinguished from people that we see being from here, but they also are beyond race at the same time, or at least they're beyond what we consider to be familiar racial differences, you know. Um, and so, what's also tricky, which doesn't deal with tricky in this book, but you know, maybe just a little bit, in, in even bringing race into the immigration debate is, is, is how you, you know, how it begins to be, like like how it. Uh, you know, um, either intersects with or complicates this notion of just race being about black and white, you know. Um, you know, because there's continuities between immigrant racialization and the history of, of, of black and white racialization. And I actually, on this book, I, I focus more on that by making the Jim Crow immigration, you know, local immigration law con- uh, connection. But there are also ways in which we can't sometimes see how race factors in because we're using this paradigm of race that is sort of focus just on this understanding of whiteness and blackness, which is which focuses on what is presumed to be indigenous to the U.S. and actually frames out everything else that, you know, that appears to be foreign, you know, you know, and just, you know, because that isn't really seem to be part of history, you know, so, so, you know, so, so, so it really actually is, I mean, it's, it seems simple enough to say we should bring race and whiteness into this to think about how it's, you know, introducing these distortions into how we see immigration. But then there's also this challenge of the way in which immigration itself might force us to see race differently than what we're used to. You know. Yeah, I think I think anyone hearing you talk about this this subject can get a sense of how uh, wide ranging and, and eclectic your take is, and, and I think for those reasons it makes it a really interesting read. Before we finish up, would you just give us a little? It sounds like you you give us some hints about your next project, but would you give us a little uh, a little bit? clear picture of what's coming up next, what we can look forward to from you for your, your next book? Well, yeah, well, actually, it's pretty much actually done, you know, it's just, you know, but yeah, it's, well, actually, it actually is on that topic, you know, where, where I'm really, uh, where I focus on the issue of migrants and race, you know, and, uh, you know, and I basically sort of really, I mean, make the argument, um, I mean, I also, but, like, what to do with, with this book, the Immigration Inclusive book, was it really is like I think four or five essays that are thematically related, but they really just kind of stand on their own. If you wanted to, you know, you know, so you know, as, as, as distinct essays that you know, it's just like four or five different windows into a topic. Um, but they also are, are kind of little worlds unto themselves. Like, like and, and the next book really is it perhaps presents more of a conventional argument. You know, that is coherent. But, you know, that really is each chapter kind of makes the same basic argument. You know, and essentially what I basically kind of argue is that there is. Um, a way in which migrants are racialized, you know, in the U.S., um, which is tied to a history of territory making, you know, like this process of, you know, of territory making, which is taking, which is sort of, sort of, 
um, you know, it's developed for the last several hundred years, you know, but, but it's a distinct kind of racialization that isn't exactly the same as white and black, uh, as black, white, you know, racialization. Um, uh, and, I mean, and it's not totally separate from that stuff either, you know, and, you know, there are continuities, and there's certainly are ways in which immigrants are racialized that can be similar, you know, uh, to the way, like, like, maybe the blacks are racialized in the U.S. But there is also something different about it, and I focus the book just on just trying to draw out what's different about it, you know, just because it, that gets lost sometimes in, in literature, you know. So that's the basic argument, you know, and then I'll use it just to try to, you know, rethink a lot of the issues that, you know, that we you know, that have been explored by race theory, I guess, in the U.S. Well, I hope you come back and, and talk about that book. It sounds like it, it might be... Um Sooner to the shelf than, uh, than than later, and you know until we get that uh, the immigration crucible transforming race, nation, and the limits of the law. It's Phil's new book, uh, 2012, from Columbia University Press. Phil, thank you very much for your time today. Yeah, well, thanks very much. Yeah, thanks again for giving me a chance to talk.